Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. When I give my seminar talks, I like giving this example. When, when we go to seminars in academic spaces, there's sometimes like free pizza. Imagine you're reaching for the last slide of pizza at the same time as the chair of the department is reaching for the last slide of pizza. It's probably going to take you less than a second to retract your hand. And that automatic reaction is because your brain can understand that where you're in, that person has more power than you. That's Nancy Padilla-Coriano, a young researcher at an exciting moment in her career, setting up her own lab in a new city. And her research is exciting, too. It uses the latest tools that allow her to track how individual neurons in the brain control behavior, including how we instantly recognize and respond to whether someone has more or less power than we do. But I was fascinated by something else about her career, too, that it reflects the theme of this podcast, Connecting and Communicating. This is going to be very interesting for me to talk with you because our show is to a great extent, about communication and relating. And your story is touched with communication all the way through, I think. Are you as aware as I am of that? I think you might be more aware than me. Tell me, tell me so. <laughs> well, you were born in Puerto Rico. To, and were both your parents musicians? My mom is a musician and her family. My dad, you know, he can sing a little bit. <laughs> so you became a musician. And you communicated through music. That's true. When did you know that there was another interest you had? I think it was in high school. I remember in high school thinking about, you know, because the better you get when you're performing it, when you're a musician and you're like trying to like master your instrument, the more you have to practice, right? Like, and I, once I was in high school, I knew of other kids I knew that were already in the conservatory and their life was basically practicing seven, eight, nine hours a day on their instrument. And I remember thinking like, oh, but there's just so many other things I want to learn. You know, I don't think I want to 
do that for so many hours. And that coincided with the time when I started asking questions about the power of music over our behavior mm. and our emotions and memory. And I, I, uh, I think sometimes like, you know, very naive, I'm like, oh, I'm going to figure this out. You know, I, I bet if I <laughs> become a neurologist, I could, I could do this. I could do things with music and maybe influence patients with music. Did you get a boost from reading Oliver Sacks? I know you've mentioned Oliver Sacks. Absolutely. Yeah. I think because he was a neurologist, so my family, there was no, um, no one's in science in my family. Um, so, but I knew of medical doctors, of course. And then I encountered Oliver Sacks, who was a neurologist. And to me, that sounded quite scientific, even though his writing is not scientific writing. It sounded like scientific writing to me. So I'm like, I was like, oh, I could be like him. He seems to do research with his patients. So um, I could become a researcher of the brain like like Oliver Sacks. See, to me, that's another notch in the communication bill <laughs> because he was describing the amazing experiences he had as a scientist. And those stories touched you, a musician, and you went from music to exploring the brain absolutely, because of the way he told his stories. Exactly. Because of the way he engaged, he was able to engage a high school student that didn't know anything about the brain. So that's so true. So how did you, how did you get training in the brain? What was your first training? So once I, I went to college in the university of Puerto Rico thinking I'll become a neurologist like Oliver Sacks, but then very quickly I encounter other students that were doing research. And very luckily, I encountered one student that was, he was an, an undergrad as well, but he was a few years ahead of me. And he was telling me about the lab that he was doing research, and he called it the fear lab because they study fear, um, fear learning, and how we uh, overcome those fears. And that sounded fascinating. And he's like, well, do you want to check out the lab? And I went and saw the lab, and it I couldn't believe that there were research labs in Puerto Rico. It was like a really revealing moment that in my university, there were some research labs that I, as an undergrad, could be part of. So I immediately um, inquired to help out. And that happened at the end of my first year. And it was really lucky that the lab that I happened to visit was the best possible lab I could have visited. It was one of the best funded research labs in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, there is research, but there's not as many resources for research as there is in the main line in, in, the, in the U.S. But this particular lab had a good amount of funding. And also the PI, his name is Gregory Kirk. He was extremely committed to the mentoring and training of underrepresented minorities, which is why he decided to go to Puerto Rico. So I walked into the right place. You know, it was meant to be. And what were you studying there? Learning fear? Yeah. Or learning through fear? We're basically using Pavlovian fear conditioning, like associating the tone with an aversive stimulus. And then that's the memory that we were studying, like where in the brain, what parts of the brain are necessary for, for learning that fear aversive stimulus association. And we were also interested in understanding how do we overcome the fear? So you could reverse the fear? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Through extinction learning, which is something that's more relevant for the clinic. What is extinction learning? Extinction learning is, is basically you first learn that, say, a tone or a cue, 
predict some aversive stimulus. But you can also learn with the repeated exposure of that stimulus or tone, say that we're playing a little tone. Um, if you start playing that tone in the absence of the stimulus, now you're going to create a new memory, which is the extinction memory. That's what we call it. And these hmm. memories, this memory does not erase the fear. They actually coexist, but it provides a way for the animal or the person to overcome that fear. And it's relevant because for people that have PTSD, it's relevant for the clinic because for people that have PTSD, actually extinction therapy is a way that you can expose a person to a stimulus that is traumatic and re repeated exposure that tends to be helpful. So understanding what's happening in the brain with this type of, of overcoming fear learning is important to, for this type of anxiety disorder such as PTSD. That must have been very exciting for you. I mean, here you were, you were still in college and you were, instead of playing tones on a keyboard, you were pay, playing them on a brain. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. I couldn't believe, I honestly didn't know up until college, I didn't understand what science was. You know, in high school, I went to these wonderful schools that specialized for music. So science really wasn't their thing. So for me, science in that school had been just memorizing facts, you know, like, uh, yeah, I got to memorize this and and then I'll have an A. And, and I had A's and, you know, I was a good student, but I did not have any passion for it at all, at all. But then in college, I discovered that that's really not facts are not really what science is, you know, it's not like these empty facts that are sitting in a textbook. I understood the process that behind every fact, there's some evidence that came often from experimental work and that some people do those experiments and ask those questions of that we don't know the answer. And that process of asking a question that nobody knows the answer to just sounded fascinating to me. It's like solving a puzzle. It's not in the textbook yet. And you can be part of that. And as an undergrad, that was extremely exciting to me. How did you get from that to concentrating on the connections among circuits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this particular lab when I was an undergrad was using pharmacology because at the time, you know, that was an easy way to manipulate the brain and ask questions about the role of given brain regions in behavior. And then when I was transitioning into grad school, it, it coincided with this new technology coming up uh, being discovered and suddenly being available for neuroscientists. And this new technology allowed neuroscientists for the first time to really precisely manipulate specific neurons in the brain and specific connections. But because before we could just put a drug in a whole brain region, um, but now with this technology, which is called optogenetics, using light, we could specifically activate or silence neurons that projected or were connected to a specific other brain region. So that really gave us a specificity that nobody had before. So that was sort of like the beginning of the excitement about specific circuits in the brain because you can study them much better. And then the other thing was that while I was an undergrad in this lab, some people in the lab were recording from the brain and asking, you know, what are neurons 
um, really signaling. So that we're, they were using a technology called electrophysiology or a technique, which is pretty bread and butter in neuroscience. So as an undergrad, it was a really difficult technique, so I couldn't do it myself. It required, um, you know, being able to be the, in the lab for full time and get trained and become an expert. So I really wanted to do that in grad school. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to learn in vivo electrophysiology because, uh, that seems like a great way to, you know, learn about the brain, just record the brain activity, right? While the animal is doing things or while um, behavior is happening. And so that's what I did in my graduate work. I was able to combine both recording from the brain and manipulating specific circuits so, and then seeing how that changes behavior. So that was like a very powerful combination. I take it you're not dealing with the human brain while it's walking around and behaving. Do you use a mouse model? Yeah. So animal models are extremely helpful to be able to interrogate the brain and ask those questions that really require us to manipulate specific circuits and manipulate activity in the brain. So through my career, I've used both rats as a model and also mice. And what kind of behavior do you get them to perform or not perform? So um, it depends on the question. So when I, when I was an undergrad and I was studying fear, they basically heard a tone that predicted an aversive stimulus, so they will freeze, you know, that, and, and this mm. is a, this is a very natural response across species, right? So when we manipulated the brain, we would see, are they freezing more or are they freezing less? And the aversive stimulus would be a mild shock? Exactly. The aversive yeah. stimulus would be a very simple, mild shock. Um, animals learn that really quick, and humans, because other people yes. do these types of experiments in humans as well. Um, <laughs> Then when I was in grad school, I wanted to understand what um, anxiety rather than fear. So fear, you know, it's defined as a response to a threat stimulus that exists. Like I, um, I am seeing the thing I'm afraid of. But when it comes to anxiety is an apprehension to something that may happen, may or may mm. not happen. Mm. So in I was using mice and mice are mice can be eaten by other animals. So naturally they are very careful and apprehend apprehensive of being in open and bright spaces. So uh, researchers have designed these mazes where the mice can freely explore parts of the mazes that are open and exposed. And therefore the animal could be more anxious of getting predated, you know, or getting eaten or seen by a bird in the wild. Mm. And, and then what they do is they have this, this, uh, they have to, they want to explore this new environment in case there's food, but they also have to protect themselves. So what we do is that we record from their brains while they're exploring these mazes and going into the anxiety provoking parts of the maze versus the parts that are safe. And so we can, measure anxiety-like behavior in rodents using these mazes. And what do you learn that can be useful to us humans? So it turns out that the parts of the brain that are active while animals are performing this avoidance behavior, or mm -hmm. the fear behaviors for that matter as well, are very similar to the parts of the brain that humans have active when humans are anxious or afraid. And also they're very they're overlapping with the same brain regions that 
patients with anxiety disorders have either overactivation or underactivation. So even though we might think um, rodents or humans are so different, when it comes to these emotional behaviors and how the brain processes them, we're actually pretty similar, <laughs> uh, surprisingly similar. Um, and perhaps this is not that surprising given that we, we have, we've evolved to avoid potential you know, pain and danger. So fear and anxiety are very helpful behaviors that help us survive. And yet, if we're ruled by anxiety, it's not so good for us. Exactly. I guess listening to this story, the average person like me is eager to know, just as you're able to figure out how to relieve the mouse of the fear when entering an environment, can you, can you help the mouse or me mm -hmm. alleviate the anxiety that's free-floating and not subject to a specific stimulus? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely our hope. Our hope is that by understanding, I mean, right now, uh, anxiety, drugs that are used for treating anxiety only work for like, you know, 40 or 50% of the patients, sometimes 60% of the patients. Um, so they don't really work that well. And, you know, they're really systemic. So they're really affecting the whole body and the whole brain equally. So what we think is that if we understand exactly what circuits in the brain are different, um, and are controlling these particular fear and anxiety behaviors, we should be able to target those circuits better, right? Beyond drugs, right? Like it's possible that it's not with drugs that we'll be able to target specific parts of the brain, but with uh, stimulation that perhaps might be able to inhibit certain parts of the brain as part of a treatment. But this is a pipeline, you know, it's not, it's not a reality yet. But I think I get the point. If you know what neurons are involved in causing the anxiety, then you know where to target your remedy, whether it's a drug or something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. When we come back from our break, Nancy Padilla-Coriano tells me how she figures out the power dynamics between two mice and how she can then find out exactly which neurons in the animal's brains reflect that relationship. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. The goal is to bridge the two cultures of science and the humanities by supporting an array of artistic works depicting science, including books, radio, television, film, theater, and new media. For more information, visit Sloan.org or follow at Sloan Public on Twitter or Facebook. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Nancy Padilla-Coriano. How did you get introduced to the notion of ranking in any social animal, including us? Yeah, so it happened in a very serendipitous way. I was, um, when I was considering what projects to pursue after I finished my PhD and I finished the anxiety project, I kind of wanted something that was more complex behaviorally. So nothing seemed more complex than social behaviors because there's like more than one one person or one animal involved in, and it's more than double the trouble, right? Because it's not simply like the summation of two people. There, there could be these dynamics that emerge between the two of them that could not emerge between the two individuals alone. And then you bring in the friend and you've got three three to worry about. Yes, absolutely. So that, yeah, it becomes even more complex when, when the group grows as well. And we're such social animals, right, uh, as humans. And so many other species are social as well. So I started thinking about social rank and how is it represented in the brain? Because this is social rank is a very useful and important social rule, right? For animals, you know, it it helps them organize their behavior depending who they're interacting with. This is, this sounds very important because most of us change our behavior when in the presence of somebody who seems to rank higher than us. Absolutely. Or lower than us. But we don't think, we, we don't think of it in those terms usually, do we? No, I think that humans, we don't like thinking ourselves as animals, you know, so hierarchies, or dominance hierarchies, that sounds like something from Animal Kingdom, but it's definitely from our our kingdom as well. It's from our society as well. We have hierarchies in the workplace, in the home, and we flexibly uh, change our behavior depending on which hierarchy we're currently participating in. And, and we take on those roles very flexibly. Um, and actually, people with psychiatric disorders have problems with that flexibility, of adjusting their beha- uh. adjusting their behavior to social rules, um, so it's a it's a not just interesting from how does the brain work and and an evolutionary perspective, but also for psychiatric disorders is is very relevant as well. So, what would be an example of the changed behavior? Can you can you describe an interaction for me, say between humans, in which? The behavior is different depending on the rank. 
I actually like when I give my seminar talks, I like giving this example. Um, so imagine that they're in seminars. When, when we go to seminars in academic spaces, there's sometimes like free pizza in the, in the room, right? And yeah. there's, um, that was pretty much before the pandemic, but we'll get there back to the free pizza soon enough, hopefully. Um, and then the pizza goes really quickly. And then imagine you're reaching for the last slide of pizza at the same time as the chair of the department is reaching for the last slide of pizza. It's probably going to take you less than a second to retract your hand as soon as you see that the, the other, who the other hand is. And that automatic reaction is because your brain can understand that where you're in, that person has more power than you. So therefore, to have priority. So the same thing happens with animals. Like dominant animals get priority access to the resources. Um, so that is priority access to the resources in social competition for any for any type of social competition is the main way in which dominance manifests. Like higher ranking animals win whenever there's a conflict where both animals want the same thing, which usually when it comes to resources or food, um, that's the case. <laughs> or in the case of the pizza scenario. That's a wonderful story about pizza. It really illustrates it. How do you, how do you explore this with an animal model? Yeah, so I actually came up with a clever way to create a pizza scenario, uh, a one slice of pizza scenario for, for mice. So mice are actually really good. Mice and other animals are really good at associating tones with rewards. So first I teach mice that live together. So these mice have a social hierarchy because they live together and they form it naturally. And we can read it out by using specific assays. Um, one specific assay is this really, if you put two mice in a very narrow tube, the one the it's almost like being in a tiny, narrow hallway. Imagine you encounter someone with uh, the boss. You, you might like back out and let them walk. So something kind of similar happens with mice where if they're in a very narrow hallway, which is really a tube, the one that backs out is the subordinate one. Um, so we can measure their social ranks using this tube assay. And then we teach each mouse to associate a tone with a reward. And the reward is this little drop of sugary milk, like a tiny little drop. And then once all the mice have learned that a tone means that a little drop of reward is coming, then we twist the situation. And all of a sudden we put two mice, but there's one tone and one reward. And then we can repeat this over trial. So then we have some repetition. And what we see is that the animal that's dominant um, gets the majority of the rewards. And this really gives us um, a way to study what happens in their brain. And we can compare the condition where they're alone and experiencing the very same context and the very same tone, but they're not in social competition. And then we can compare that to the context of the social competition when you suddenly bring one of their bodies from their cage and that body's dominant to them. So then this really changes the situation. So they're in competition for the reward because they both know that there's this drop of milk with sugar in it. And when the subordinate animal gives it up in favor of the other one, then you, then you, you see the ranking having a hold on them. What are the factors that lead 
to sensing that another animal has a higher rank than you? Is it smell? Is it is it some kind of body language? What what is it? <laughs> um, for for mice, they can smell it, which is fascinating actually, because once an animal becomes dominant, and they become dominant by we- winning fights in the home cage, right? Like, and that establishes their dominance, and then they get priority access to the food. And another thing that happens is that the the smell of their pee actually changes because they're territorial animals. And I believe this is the case for dogs as well. And that's why dogs and, and mice as well uh, are smelling to see who's who's around here. Um, that's how they signal their, their territory by marking and u- using these uh, urine smells. So mice can, in theory, smell uh, a, another dominant animal, even if they don't know them. But also, like, there's some evidence that social memory systems are important as well to know who's who and how they relate to you. Social memory systems meaning what? Uh, memories of their who they are and what your interactions with that other animal has been. Ah, I yeah. see. So you, you don't even need to smell them as long as you have a strong memory of being thrown to the mat by this other mouse. Exactly. <laughs> so when you when you have these two animals in a tube and you're checking on how they respond to the ranking, are you recording signals from their brain at the same time? Yeah, so rather than recording while they're in the tube, we record when they're in the in, in this chamber where they're hearing the tone and getting their reward. And one thing that we found that was extremely surprising for us, we thought that their frontal part of the brain, which is really important for... Uh, for decision-making and judgment across species in humans um, and also in animals. And we thought, well, perhaps the prefrontal cortex will show social rank information when the tone plays, because that's the moment when it's relevant. But to our surprise, the prefrontal cortex was signaling social rank the whole time, (laughs) independent of the actual moment of competition. So as long as the other animal was present, there was this constant signal of the social rank differences of the animal. Have you thought about in your own life, in your own experience, in the experience of others, how much of this plays out, what we were just talking about, (laughs) how much of this plays out between men who behave like alpha males and women who are in the same lab, let's say, with the same credentials. I heard you on a podcast on the subject of statistics. That sounded like an example of what we're talking about. Oh my God, about. yes. <laughs> yeah. how, did, how, did, how did that go? Um, I wish I had said something at the time. You know, I was, I was young. Um, but basically, the story is that I was having a conversation with other graduate students, which were a little older than me, and, and they happened to be male. And they they were talking about how how they like explaining statistics as oh this is just like a big model of how the world wor- works and and when they said that because it was model based i said oh wait a minute what about non parametric statistics which are not supposed to be model based and then the student was so surprised that i knew what non parametric statistics were and it just felt very condescending 
Uh, and he was like, oh my God, you know what non-parametric statistics is? Like, good for you. And I, <laughs> it just hit me really. Uh, I was like, wow, okay, okay. <laughs> but at least now you know what was happening in his neurons and your neurons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Now I have a much better understanding. Which reminds me, reminds me of the podcast on which I heard you talk about that statistics story which is the podcast you started. Yeah. In which, in a way, you, you advocate not just for yourself, but for all women neuroscientists. The podcast is called Stories of Win. Win, win being an acronym for women in neuroscience, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was a project that came from my, my realization of my own bias, where I was evaluating a list of potential seminar speakers and I didn't notice that nobody had suggested the name of a woman. Like it just, I was blind to it. You know, I was just looking at these names. I was supposed to evaluate the fit of these potential speaker speakers. And it took somebody else to tell me, to bring that to my attention. And I just felt so ashamed. I'm like, how? once they told me, it was so obvious, you know? It was this list of 50 names and not a single one of the names were from a woman. And... It, what was more troubling was that this list was names submitted mm. by trainees of the department. So these are the the next generation of scientists, right? Um, so, and I submitted names too. So it was this moment of realization that the the future of neuroscience, like the people that are training, we all have we we are clearly biased. Like when considering like who is the prominent neuroscientist that we want to invite. And then what was extra troubling for me, and that's how I decided to to create this project, was that when I was trying to think of names of women neuroscientists to invite, I just couldn't. I only could think of a handful of really, really famous women who had already attended because those famous women are invited everywhere. Um, and I just felt like there's a visibility issue here. Um, so, and I wanted to educate myself about the contributions of that women have made in neuroscience mm. and also at the same time, increase the visibility of women and use that very same project to create role models for the younger generation. So not to hit the nail on the head too many times, further examples of how communication is your story. That's so true. <laughs> You've done over 50 conversations already with w women neuroscientists. Are there a couple of things you think you've learned that you weren't aware of before? Yeah. So when it comes to, we, we love not just hearing about the research of the women, but we also ask them about, about their career trajectory. Um, and, and often, often many of these extremely successful women talk about feeling at some point like what we call imposter syndrome mm. that, you know, even though they've made it to where they are, they feel like they don't belong. And that's something I've actually felt and interviewing these women that have, uh, that are extremely successful and have also felt this like feeling of not belonging was super mind open, mind opening because I realized that this is pretty normal and I'm not alone. And that, you know, you can have these thoughts of like um, having second thoughts, like of your, of your own capabilities, 
But if you realize that a lot of other people are having those second thoughts of their own capabilities, then it's like, oh, okay, this is normal. And it's actually been very beneficial for myself in a way that like to, to feel more connected to other women that do, you know, that are in the same field as I am, um, to see parallels in their stories with my stories and how the important of the importance that good mentors have played in their life. And so that's been really wonderful in a way that I did not anticipate. Do you think this imposter syndrome, second thoughts about their own abilities, is this strongly connected to the ranking thing that you've been studying in <laughs> social animals? What, what, what brings it about? I don't know. Um, but I would love to talk to someone who studies uh, social dominance in humans to see what they think about it. Uh, because we we don't have a way of interrogating animals and asking them if they have imposter syndrome. Like, do they? Do you feel like you have second thoughts? Are you are you nervous about your own abilities? <laughs> are you a powerful mouse or not? Well, this leads into our seven quick questions, which we always ask at the end of a conversation. You'll see one or two of these questions mirror, in a way, what we've been talking about. First question is, whether it's in science or in your life, what do you wish you really understood? What a question. Well, I guess I'll cheat and I'll tell you the question that I hope to address with my lab, with my future research work um, as a as a principal investigator, and that is that I really want to understand how the brain can make us socially can- competent. How come that this organ in our head allows us to interact with others in ways that work? Next question: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> well, if I had to do it, I would say. Um, interesting. I'm aware actually about this other information, you know, so I try not to directly tell them they're wrong. <laughs> I had to do the same thing in an email this morning. So I know, I know what you mean by that. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Hmm. Well, I guess one time I told someone that I was from Puerto Rico and they kind of like didn't believe me they're like are you sure like i've you know people are you sure you're not from russia like you really look like this russian friend i have (laughs) so that was kind of strange (laughs) are you sure you're not from russia (laughs) (laughs) how do you stop a compulsive talker um you say you have to go to the bathroom (laughs) (laughs) you know since we've been do, asking that question of people on this show, I just picture hordes of Americans going to the bathroom because every, <laughs> so many people have this technique. Oh, wow. Well, I'm not alone. I thought I made it up right now. Okay. Then I have intuition. Good intuition. <laughs> okay. Let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a good, true, real, authentic conversation with that person? Hmm. I don't know if I'm good at this, but um, I would try to 
I mean, I guess like I don't shy away from deep conversation or like I'm not a person to be like, oh, what's the weather like today? So I definitely mm. wouldn't comment on any small thing. Mm. I might just ask them where they're from and try to take it deep from there. But I don't have a technique yet for for the exact thing that you brought up. <laughs> so you don't go right away into do you think there's life after death? Uh No, I've never done that. I've never done that, but I'll put it on my bucket of things to try out. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't tried it either. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? I think that my mentors, when my really trusted mentors reassure me of my ability, I feel more confident. What book changed your life? Uh, Musicophilia by Oliver Sacks. Uh, which brings us full circle. This has been so much fun. You've been fun to communicate with, and I really appreciate it. And the, the work you do sounds so fascinating. You're you're lucky to have organized your life to be able to do that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Nancy Padilla-Coriano is the principal investigator of the Padilla-Coriano Lab at the McKnight Brain Institute at the University of Florida. You can check out the podcast she co-founded and directs, Stories of Women in Neuroscience, at storiesofwin.org, and you can follow her on Twitter at Dr. Nancy Padilla. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with author Tor Hansen. His new book is Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid an engaging and sometimes alarming account of how plants and animals are adapting or not adapting to climate change. When we look at plants and animals and how they're responding, A, we can take some inspiration in that if there's a tiny lizard out there that is evolving in response to this crisis, then you know maybe we can change some of the behaviors that are bringing it about, right? I think there's some basic inspiration to be had. Tor Hansen talking of lizards that survive hurricanes and oak trees that migrate next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All of one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.